just before uh, Johnny comes up to uh, share with us God's word, uh, we're just going to read the reading, uh, which is Mark chapter 1, 1 to 15. Chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me, after me comes he who is mightier than I and strength. Mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Good morning, everyone. And uh, let me add my welcome to Jonathan's. Uh, For those who haven't met me before, my name's Johnny. I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here at Hebron. And we are really delighted that you've gathered with us together this morning. Uh, We've already had our reading. Uh, Thank you to Jonathan for that from Mark chapter 1. And it would be helpful both to me and I trust to you if you could have that open in front of you over the course of the next few minutes. Before we think about that together, though, let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we praise you as one who is mighty and as one who is kind. We ask that as we consider your words together this morning, you would help us each to rightly appreciate and to rightly enjoy your rule and your rescue of your people. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, we, uh, we live in the age of the 24-hour news cycle, don't we? Where stories tend to just kind of loop around and around on news feeds, on social media, or on 24-hour news channels. And in that kind of news cycle, even fairly unremarkable news can be enough to trigger that breaking news banner peeling across the bottom of the screen on a TV news channel. My wife Fiona receives news alerts to her phone whenever there is breaking news. And within the past few months, she received an alert that, was, that, that packaged itself as breaking news that the final contestants for this series of Strictly Come Dancing had been announced. And I'm sure that interests some of us more than others, but no matter how much you're into the Paso Doble or the Cha Cha Cha, I'm not really sure it stopped the press material. But occasionally... Just occasionally, there is breaking news that genuinely stops you in your tracks. The kind of news that you remember where you were when you heard it. You might be able to bring to your own mind some examples of that from your life. Some of us here might remember hearing about the assassination of JFK 
or, or, or the news of the moon landing rocking the world. For others, perhaps the news that sticks in your mind is, is the fall of the Berlin Wall or, or, or September the 11th. We've had some fairly memorable breaking news recently, haven't we, with the, with the death of Queen Elizabeth. News that's significant enough that it warrants the alert being sent to your phone. The interruption of regular broadcasting that's big enough, important enough that everyone, everyone needs to hear it. As Jonathan mentioned, we're starting a new series uh, that will take us over the course of the next few weeks in one of the biblical accounts of Jesus' life this morning called Mark. And Mark wants us to see that when we read his account, that that is just the kind of material we're dealing with. It is stop your day, interrupt the broadcasting, pull over to the side of the road to take it in, news. Mark begins his whole account with with a breaking news banner, if you like, to let us know that that's the kind of document we're dealing with. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he says, This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the eagle-eyed among you will notice he doesn't actually use the word news there, does he? But that's because he uses a word that's even stronger than that. It's that word, gospel. Now, some of us might associate the word gospel with with a genre of music, perhaps. Others, perhaps, with, with a genre of literature. We've read this morning from what we might call the gospel of Mark, haven't we? But when Mark first used it, it wasn't just a religious word. He was borrowing a word from the culture in which he was writing, where gospel was a declaration or a proclamation. So when a new emperor was announced, or a great victory had been won in battle... That news would be proclaimed all over the first century world as gospel, as big news. Now we'll get onto the detail of the news that Mark wants us to hear in just a moment, but it is just worth pausing, I think, before we do that, to clock what kind of document we're going to be dealing with over the course of the next few weeks. Because on the one hand, it is a biography, it's an account of Jesus' life, written by folks through eyewitness testimony, but it is also news. Big news. Stop the press news. And I do just wonder whether that might not be the category that some of us have in our minds when we come to think about the Bible or the accounts of Jesus' life. It's quite common in our culture, I think, to treat the Bible as as being like an ancient self-help book. A book that tells you how to be good and kind to one another, how to live a peaceful life. But can you see, that isn't the kind of category Mark puts his account in. As one commentator observes, he doesn't call it the beginning of the good advice. It's good news. Grab you by the shoulders and give you a shake. News. And so it's that news we're going to be thinking about together over the course of the next few weeks. But if that's the kind of category we're dealing with, we're dealing with news, what's the substance of the news? What's it actually about? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, verse 1 functions like a headline or like a rolling news banner across the bottom of the TV screen. It gives us a summary of what the big story is about. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This news is about Jesus Christ, or perhaps even clearer still, the news is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, just to be clear, Christ isn't Jesus' surname, like Smith or Jones. Christ is a title. 
It's a title given throughout the Old Testament to God's chosen king. And so the headline, the the, the breaking news banner, is that this is news, big news, about a king, about God's chosen king. But actually, whilst it is breaking news, it didn't come from nowhere. In fact, Mark's initial focus is on the fact that people had predicted his coming. And we'll see that under our first heading this morning. Next slide, please, Jonathan. Thank you. Jesus is God's universal king. I wonder if you've ever watched an awards ceremony of some kind where someone's been given an award, perhaps for their outstanding contribution or a lifetime achievement award. And before they're given the award, there's often a video played of different people paying tribute to the person who's receiving the award. But you might have noticed that it isn't just the words of the tributes themselves that matter in that kind of video. It's who is saying those words, who's giving those tributes. Because you see, a tribute from, from Steven Spielberg carries more weight than a tribute from the director of a local Amdram production, doesn't it? And so sometimes you find this odd thing where the host of an award ceremony ends up kind of paying a mini-tribute to the people who are then going to pay tribute to someone else. It's like a strange kind of tribute conga line. And the reason they do it is to, to underline, to double underline how important the recipient of the award is. So that the person who we're giving this award to is so important, even Spielberg thinks they're important. That's the kind of logic. And I wonder if you noticed that Mark does some similar double underlining in the first few verses of his account. He gives us a quote in verses 2 and 3, a composite quote, which comes from Isaiah and from Malachi. Now, he only name-checks Isaiah, but that isn't something to worry about. It's really because Isaiah was considered among the greatest of Old Testament prophets, and that's really a banner for who this is going to be coming from. But both Isaiah and Malachi were prophets. Both wrote hundreds of years before Jesus was born. But just remember... Mark has told us that this account is about Jesus. This is big news about Jesus. But just notice, the first person we hear about isn't Jesus himself. They draw our attention to someone who was going to prepare the way for Jesus. Read with me, verse 2. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Isaiah and Malachi both predict the coming of a messenger, a messenger sent by God, who himself would prepare the way for someone else. Or in other words, both of those prophets are predicting the coming of a predictor. You see, it's kind of like that tribute conga line, isn't it? And then we meet that coming predictor in verses 4 to 8. Verse 4, a man called John appears in the wilderness, baptizing people. And just notice the message that he was preaching. Verse 7, he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. John's predicting the coming of someone so great that John won't even be worthy to untie his bootstraps. 
And so we have this kind of building picture through Mark chapter 1, don't we? We've got the prophets predicting the coming of a predictor. The predictor then arrives and talks about a greater one to come. And then finally, the greater one arrives on the scene, verse 9. And yet even then, the tributes aren't quite over. Just read with me, verse 10. And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. And the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. It's the ultimate tribute, isn't it? It's the ultimate character reference. Jesus' identity being attested by the voice of God the Father. And by the appearance of the Holy Spirit. Now notice that voice from heaven says of Jesus, you are my son. And when we read that, we might understandably think that he's highlighting a family connection there. He's almost talking genetics in that sense, that Jesus is God's son. And whilst there is clearly something in that, I don't actually think that family is the main point. I think the main point is still that Jesus is God's king. Why do I say that? Well, verse 11 is another one of those composite quotes where where verses from various parts of the Bible are put together to make a point. Part of the quote is from Psalm 2, one of the songs in the Old Testament. And the author of Psalm 2 talks in these terms of God's son. And when he's speaking of God's son, he isn't just highlighting a family relationship between father and son. No, it's a title. It's a title given to God's all-powerful, universal king. A ruler with authority over all the nations on the planet. And so can you see what Mark's doing? It's as if he's gathering together a montage of tributes to this coming king. Multiple witnesses to his identity. There are the prophets, verses 2 and 3, predicting someone who would come, who would point to God's coming king. John the Baptist, verses 4 to 8, shows himself to be that person, pointing to God's coming king. And here we have God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, verses 9 to 11, on the same point too. Mark wants us to be crystal clear that Jesus is God's long-promised universal king and so the first question that leaves us with this morning is whether you believe that that jesus is god's universal king see i mentioned at the outset this morning that understanding this book understanding mark's account of the life of jesus as like a news announcement might involve a category shift for some of us But I do just wonder if understanding Jesus as being God's universal king might require a similar kind of category shift for some of us. From perhaps thinking of Jesus as an inspirational leader, or as a teacher, or as a prophet of peace, to seeing him as the eyewitnesses saw him, seeing him as he saw himself, as God's universal king. Mark's making absolutely sure that we don't miss it. But perhaps you are already clear on that. Maybe you're a Christian and you don't think you need much convincing that Jesus is God's king. But again, I do just wonder if this might be either a helpful reminder or a prompt to shift your categories a bit. A reminder that right at the heart of the Christian faith is a public declaration. It is news about a universal king. 
And that means that Jesus Christ is not just a private friend or a personal hobby or something you do at the weekend. He's the king. He's God's king. He's the ruler over all things. And that means that when you put your faith in Jesus, when you you follow him, when you trust in him, it isn't just like taking up a slightly embarrassing pastime or a hobby that that people at work or your friends don't really need to know about, that, that doesn't really concern them, doesn't really affect them. No, you're submitting yourself to God's universal king and his arrival is news of universal importance. Now we're going to think in the weeks to come about why it might not always look like that. Why it might not always feel like that right now. But it is true nonetheless. Jesus is God's universal king. Mark is declaring it and he's lining up witness after witness after witness to that fact. But it is really important to to clock that Jesus is God's king. It's important to know that he's come and walked among us in flesh and blood. But it is worth asking, why? What has God's king actually come to do? Well, that's another of Mark's big themes. He's going to unpack that for us over the weeks to come. But we're given a trailer of what it is that he's come to do in these opening verses. And so we'll think about that under our next heading this morning. Next slide, please, Jonathan. Thank you. Jesus, God's universal king, came to rescue from judgment and evil. Now, whenever a regime change happens, whether on a big scale or on a small scale, what often happens right at the start of that change is that a new leader will highlight some of the problems facing their constituents or their subjects and will tell them just how it is they plan to address those problems. So if you're familiar, for example, with American politics, when a new president is installed, they give an inaugural address where they they kind of outline the big challenges the country's facing and set out their intention to deal with those challenges as a new leader. Or on perhaps a much less grand scale, just think of a local council election as the newly elected councillor is keen to point out that the roads in their, in their district are in a state and that the bin collections have gone to pot and therefore c- commits themselves to dealing with those problems. Well, that's the kind of principle Mark uses in the opening verses of, these, of this account as he tells us about the arrival of God's king. He highlights a huge, gaping problem that all of us face. And he indicates just how it is that God's universal king has come to address it. And we actually see that by how it is that the predictors prepared the way for God's coming messenger in verses 2 and 3. If you just have your Bible open in front of you and look back to those verses from Malachi and Isaiah, from verses 2 and 3. The quote from Malachi, well it does highlight that a messenger is coming to prepare the way for God's king. But in the context in Malachi, well, the messenger is preparing the way for God's king to come in judgment. Just a couple of verses after the quote, in the context of Malachi chapter 3, he says this, I will draw near to you for judgment. Because you see, in, in Malachi's day, people had rebelled against the good and right rule of God in their lives. And Malachi was telling them that that was a problem, a big, big problem. And that God was going to come and hold them to account for that. 
And that same principle is true today. You and I, every person in this room this morning, has rebelled against God, has disobeyed his good and right rule over our lives, and we stand under his judgment for that. Now, I'm conscious that isn't often a popular thing to say. Conscious that for some of us it might even be a shocking thing to hear, actually, especially if you've never thought about it before. But the Bible is crystal clear that all of us have rejected our God, that that rejection is a serious, serious thing, and that all of us stand under judgment for that. Malachi made it clear, and Mark wants us to have that in our minds, the problem-facing humanity. God will judge everyone who's rejected him, and that means everyone. And yet, and yet, that isn't the only idea Mark wants us to have in our minds. Because by contrast with that quote from Malachi, well, the quote he takes verses 2 and 3 from in Isaiah is taken from a picture of hope. Where rather than giving his people what they deserve, God promises to bring salvation. Promises to bring rescue from, of his people from the judgment they deserve. So on the one hand, humanity's absolute culpability before God, and on the other, God's purpose to rescue us. And can you see what Mark's doing in that composite quote in verses 2 and 3? He's tying them both together in this coming king. And as we read on to the message of the messenger, John the Baptist, he keeps both of those themes front and center as well in verses 4 to 8. In verse 4, he speaks about sin, humanity's sin, and yet he also speaks of that sin being forgiven. And so we have it in the prophets. We have it from the messenger, all speaking of humanity's great problem and of God's promised solution. And onto the scene steps Jesus to bring that message to the people. Although he does it in what might seem like a confusing way. I wonder if you noticed that. Read with me verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. The first thing that happens to Jesus as he arrives on the scene is that he's baptized. And I wonder if that maybe strikes you as being a bit strange. Because baptism in the Christian faith is like a visual sign, a picture of forgiveness, of being washed clean of our sin, of our uncleanness before God. So why on earth is Jesus being baptized? We've already been told that he's the son of God, that he's God himself. He doesn't need to be cleansed, does he? He doesn't need to be forgiven because he hasn't done anything wrong. So why is he being baptized? Well, he isn't being baptized because he needs to be washed himself. No, he's being baptized as a sign that he's come to identify with our need to be cleansed. Despite himself not needing to be. More than that even, as a sign that he's, he's come to be the one who will do that cleansing. And we see that in what John the Baptist said of him. Verse 8, I've baptized you with water, said John, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Or in other words, my baptism will get you wet. He's going to wash you to cleanse you through and through. 
Jesus came to identify with our plight as humanity, as sinful people in need of forgiveness, despite having no sin of himself. And not only that, to be the means of that forgiveness. And there is a similar idea happening in verses 12 and 13 too. Another, what might strike us as being a slightly strange scene. Jesus is compelled to go into the wilderness. And he's tempted by Satan, the personal actor of evil in the world. Why does that happen? Well, again, Mark is trailing the fact that Jesus has come to engage. And ultimately, as we'll see in the weeks to come, to destroy evil. But in the first instance, can you see the various components that Mark is holding out for us? This is, this is like the inaugural address, setting out what's going to happen, what this new leader is going to do. Jesus Christ is God's universal king. And he came to rescue people from judgment and to engage and ultimately to destroy evil. That's the breaking news that Mark wants us to set up and listen to. Now, what are we to do with all of that? What does it actually make of a difference to us in the day-to-day of life? Well, we're going to think about that briefly under our final heading this morning. Next slide, please, Jonathan. Thank you. Jesus, God's universal rescuing king, calls for a response. Now, you might have seen uh, recent footage from the Market Cross in Edinburgh of the formal proclamation of King Charles as the new king. A man called Joseph Morrow, who's the Lord Lion King of Arms, reads out the proclamation. And as he reads out and he makes this pronouncement, it's met by some people shouting along with him, God save the king, God save the king. But you can also hear on the footage that it's met with some different reactions. Some shouts of protest, some boos even from people who clearly didn't think that Prince Charles being pronounced as king was especially good news. And in a similar way, the arrival of King Jesus provokes divergent responses, both in the rest of Mark's gospel and in our world today. Some people will reject him, will hear this breaking news of God's coming coming king and just ignore it. Some will violently oppose him even. But some will accept him. And the rescue that he's come to bring. And in this final little picture, the vignette at the end of Mark's introduction, he tells us just how we might do that. Read with me again, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, that word repent might sound like an old-fashioned word to some of us, but its meaning is actually pretty simple. Repentance means turning. Turning away from something and turning to something else. And that's the kind of thing Jesus calls people to do. In response to his arrival, to recognize our need of his forgiveness. And he calls us to turn from our rejection of him And to turn to Jesus for that forgiveness. Believing in him as God's rescuing king. That's the kind of response that Jesus demands. The kind of response that Mark thinks is absolutely the right one to this breaking news. And I wonder what you think of that this morning. Perhaps you've never thought 
or heard of that kind of thing before. And it's not quite the picture of Jesus you have in your mind. Jesus as God's rescuing king. Maybe it is just quite a new idea for you. Well, if that is you, then please don't stop listening now. Keep reading on in Mark's account and find out more about him. Come along next Sunday morning and in the weeks to come. Listen to what he says about himself, about the world, and about you. Because listen, it is the most profoundly important news you will ever hear. And it demands a response. And if you are a clear Christian, well this has a really sharp application to you too. Firstly in the sense that this news is really good news. That if you've trusted in him and in his death on the cross, well he's rescued you from judgment from uncleanness, made you right before a right and perfect God, both now and forevermore. And that is just wonderful, wonderful news. Please never grow bored or blasé about what Jesus came to do. That's one line of application. But it does have a clear application in another sense, because can you see that this good news is good news for the world? And I wonder if we always think of it like that. Because our culture doesn't always treat the message of Jesus as though it's good news, does it? When we speak to people about Jesus, it's often treated as though it's bad news. Or perhaps as though it's just irrelevant. And over time, it's just possible we might start to think the same way too. To feel as though we're asking people a favour when we ask them if we can speak to them about Jesus. Or perhaps start to wonder if, if, well, this news might work for me, but it it, it doesn't work for everyone, so, so I wouldn't bother anyone else with it. But can you see, Jesus is God's universal king, and he's come to rescue people to himself, and that is a stop the press message. A message verified by prophets who predicted his coming, by a messenger, John the Baptist, who prepared the way, by God the Father and the Holy Spirit attesting to it, and by Jesus himself preaching it. So brothers and sisters, let's join them. Tell that good news. News that the king, God's king, has come. And he's come to save. Let's pray and ask for his help to tell that good news now. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we come before you this morning and praise you. We praise you for your extraordinary kindness in sending Jesus, your universal king. And sending him to die the most unkingly of deaths in ignominy on a cross. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that though you lived a perfect life, that still you identified with us who have not. By bearing the good and right judgment of human sin, of our sin, on your own shoulders. The coming sin. Help us please to appreciate that and to enjoy it. And to rejoice in it this morning. And to treat it as the good world changing news that it really is. And Lord we do pray that even today someone here would bow the knee before you for the very first time. Ask for your forgiveness. 
and receive your extraordinary mercy. We ask all of these things in the name of our King, our Rescuer, Jesus Christ, and for his sake. Amen.